we're going to look at this next section here in Exodus chapter 20. Beginning, uh, we'll kind of begin here in 18 and uh, look down and start there. But before, before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Um, Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us in allowing us this privilege. Uh, God, we, we come to you today with uh, thanksgiving in our heart, even as we've heard this from Stephen. So just help us now as we look to your word. We're excited about your word. And God, we just pray that uh, you would use it, take your spirit, use it in our hearts so that we may be better followers of you, better believers. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm really thankful. You know, I've, I've said before that one of, my, one of my professors in seminary, whenever we asked him a question, his first response, and this is one of the smartest men I really have ever met, and one of his first responses was always, you need to read your Bible more. And that's all he always told us. Uh, when, they, when the question came up, you need to read your Bible more. And so basically he was saying, I'm not going to answer that. Go read your Bible more. I mean, that's pretty plain, right? Um, and I'm just, I've just been uh, interesting to see how, as we've worked here on, on uh, Wednesday nights, working through Genesis and into Exodus, and then tying that in, even as we saw it in Acts. This past Sunday, I read like 7,000 verses from Acts. Y'all remember that? But even as Stephen preached through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's interpreting the events that go on that we've been reading, right? He's, he's walking through it. These are, this is what it meant and here's what it does. And so that's just incredibly helpful for us that we read our Bible. The best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. That's our first rule. Whenever we want to think about how the Bible, you know, works and we're trying to figure out what this means, the best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. And so we continue to read it because scripture oftentimes answers the questions we're looking for just simply by looking at it. And so you see that with Stephen. I was, I, I, I have been you're really thankful for going through Acts. This is not the first time I've done it in my ministry. In fact, it'll be the third. Uh, and, and so I'm really thankful in going through that and working through it and, and doing Stephen. This coming Sunday, I'm excited because uh, Pastor Nathan Finn will be preaching for us this coming Sunday. I will be be uh, speaking at Myrtle Beach at the South Carolina Baptist Converge Conference, which is going to be about a 1,000 college students there uh, from North Greenville, from every college around our state gathering in Myrtle Beach. And I'll be speaking down there to college students. A great investment. I love college students. It's a uh, it was a time in my life where the Lord just really molded me into who he wanted to be, me to be as a minister, where he kind of invested, here's your calling, here's what you're doing, that kind of stuff. So anytime I get that opportunity, so I'm really thankful to be able to go down there and speak. But I'm also very thankful as Pastor Nathan will kind of take us to those next two steps there. I'm just, go ahead and Nathan, I'll see you over there. I'm going to tell him what you're going to do, Nathan, so that way you got to do it. Um, but just seeing how those themes that we see, how Saul ravages the church and then Philip takes the gospel on, it doesn't stop the gospel. And so I really encourage you to be here uh, this Sunday as we continue in Acts and see how these things match up as we're looking. And, and it may seem weird because tonight we're going to get into a little bit of stuff. And, and I, I wrestled with this because y'all know how by now uh, I remember growing up and I, Maybe I'm going to chase a couple rabbits. But I'm gonna, I remember growing up, my favorite show was The A-Team. Y'all ever watched The A-Team? Any of y'all know The A-Team? I can still do the theme. Dun, 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 dun. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And, and, and it was always had its rhythms. You knew something. 
and you could set your watch by it. At 45 minutes past the hour, they were going to build something out of nothing. You know what I'm saying? And that something they build was going to take on Hannibal. And Hannibal was going to take that, and then he's going he's to go after the, the army guys that are after him. It was the greatest show ever made. And it was like clockwork. There was going to be trouble. They were going to have to figure out something. They were going to knock out Mr. T because he can't fly. And then they're going to they're going to build something and make it happen. It's like it's like clockwork every single time. And so as I teach, I like to teach that way. So y'all know I'm always building. Even when you're in the Old Testament, you kind of deal with it. Here's what we're doing. But at the end, you're just going to kind of hit that up note of Jesus because there he is, right? Well, this one doesn't set up like that. And so I've been trying to wrestle with this, you know, like, Lord, it's really uncomfortable for me because I'm trying to set this deal up and it can do it because Jesus kind of comes at the front part of this one. And so as y'all know, Jesus is in every text and in every page and all of this is about Christ pointing to Christ, not just some moral lesson. This section is going to be important for us to try to understand that. So bear with me as I try to feel my way through it. Y'all kind of walk in the dark with me. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Some people call that the blind leading the blind, but I'm not going to go that far. I think I know what I'm doing. But in Acts chapter 20, you have a buffer zone. After the Lord gives them the Ten Commandments, you have kind of this transition there in verse 18. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off. And so ultimately, you have this scene, right? And we've talked about this before. The Lord comes down, and if you remember, the Lord comes down and he says to Moses, I'm going to say this loud enough so everybody can hear me. He wants the people of Israel to know that what's coming in these ten is coming from the mouth of God himself. That's what he wants them to know. He wants them to know this is coming from me. Not Mo, There's no intercessor at this point. This is coming from me. This is from God. And so they don't, they don't have to question what happens. This is coming from me. That's his whole point. And so the Lord comes down on the mountain, and the way his presence on the mountain is manifested on display is that there is smoke, there is fire, there is thunder, there is lightning, the earth is quaking, and, 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 and all of these things are happening because God's presence is there. God's presence is there. I oftentimes, I oftentimes hear people talk about being in the Lord's presence as if it's just some common little thing, right? As if it's just some small thing. Do y'all know every single time in the scriptures when the Lord shows up and his presence is there, y'all know those who were in the presence of the Lord didn't see that as some giddy little thing. You know what I'm saying? Oh, look, the Lord's here. No, Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up at the Mount of Transfiguration and Peter, James, and John, he shows all of his glory. What do they do? Fall down as dead men. In the book of Revelation, he shows up and John sees him and falls down as a dead man. In other words, they don't feel worthy to be in his presence at all. And here the presence of God shows up and everyone says, I can't get near this. There's fear. There's trembling even that's coming. So I can't even get near what this is. So they back up in fear. In other words, they're going to tell Moses, listen to this, verse 19. You speak to us and we'll listen. Do not let God speak to us lest we die. We have heard enough from him. 
We can't take it anymore. It's too terrifying to hear. It's too much to bear. We've heard enough. The Lord gives his 10 commandments and the people say, that's enough. That's enough. The presence of God is a powerful thing. Something that is not to be taken lightly or small. It is, it is something that, that is intense and, and great that we see here. And so the people say to Moses, I tell you what, we heard God say those 10, but from now on, we'll take your word for it. From now on, you tell us and that'll be sufficient. We've heard enough from that. We can't take this anymore. They're in fear. So what does Moses do? Moses said to the people, do not fear For God has come to test you. God has come to test you that the fear, come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Now what he's saying here, this word test can also mean in the same sense to train. You know, so so the idea of of putting something to a test or training something into something. So So he's saying the Lord's come here to train you to train you, if you will, to put this before you to say, here's how serious sin is. These 10 commandments that I'm giving you, here's how serious I am about those things. You see just a glimpse of the holiness, the power of God in the presence of God in fire and smoke and earthquakes and lightning. And when he speaks, it's like a thousand trumpets speaking. You see just a glimpse of the presence and power of God. And you don't want to cross a God that is that holy and that great. In other words, this is to train you that to break these commandments You are stepping over against the God who can make this earth shake with his very voice. Does that make sense to everybody? You're stepping over. The Lord did this to show you how great and how powerful he is and how serious he is about holiness and pursuit after him, about keeping these commandments. The Lord's showing you how important these things are and what it means to cross them. For to cross these commandments is to cross that God that you see that comes down on the mountain. And Moses says, don't fear. He just wants you to see. He wants you to see his holiness. That's on display so that you will not break any of these commandments. You may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thickness where God was. Here we see Moses acting as his mediator role. He is the one who's coming to mediate between God and man. He's the one who's coming to, to kind of bear that role out. So he is the deliverer who's helped deliver them out of the promised land. Now he's mediating. So he is going to go close into the presence of God. It says he even goes into the storm, right? He even goes into the cloud. He goes close into the presence of God to hear from God so that God will tell him what is going to happen here. So what I said earlier is that what we see maybe is as our Moses here goes into the presence to mediate on behalf of the people. In this few, these few verses, you see, I think, a great and glorious picture of Christ Jesus himself. Because Moses will tell us there's one coming who's greater than me. He's going to be the deliverer that will deliver you out, not of the bondage of Egypt, but the bondage and slavery of sin. He's going to deliver you out of sin. He's going to be the one who delivers you away from your guilt. 
You who have broken these commandments, he will deliver you from them. And where did our, just as Moses draws near to God into the darkness of the cloud that day, where does our Christ draw near to God? Y'all remember? It was on a mountain as well called Mount Calvary where he steps into the very darkness of God, going where we could not go. Remember what happens when he's on the cross? The sun disappears, the earth shakes, the rocks split in two. Don't don't forget those passages there, that when Jesus is on the cross facing the wrath of God, bearing that for us, this whole cosmos was in action. The stars quit shining, the sun stopped, the earth shook, Jesus stepped into the wrath of God so we wouldn't have to. He mediated that covenant relationship for us. He did what we could not do by stepping into that place there on Mount Calvary, taking that wrath, that that God who shook the mountain with his words and with lightning and with fire and clouds and that same God that Israel said, I don't want any part of this. Jesus steps up to take that part for us. Just as Moses mediates here to get the words of God and bring them back to the people, Jesus will mediate on behalf of his people to bring them closer to God. That's exactly what we see in this passage, pointing us forward as Moses takes off here. And this buffer now comes back because Moses is going to hear from the Lord. And this next section of scripture is one that's always quite interesting. Really from chapter 20, verse 22, all the way over to chapter 23, verse 11, or verse 19 or so. Some give it all the way to the end of 23. So almost uh, 20, I can't count, 21, 22, three chapters. All of those are what we call the book of the covenant. In other words, this is a section of scripture where he's already given the Ten Commandments and now these are the laws or the other statutes that he's going to give along with it. And what are these for? These are for certain things. Before we, and, and, and really we get into this. You, you get stuff like don't boil, you should not boil a young. Y'all say boil or boil. See, y'all all said it different. Everybody said it different. So I'm going to stick with bull. Don't bull a young goat in its mother's milk. And you're sitting there, what in the world does that have to do with me? You know what I'm saying? How in the world can we figure this out for us? And you go into all this other stuff. You get some verses. You know, some of us say, uh, honor your father and mother. And we like to say that to their kids, to our kids. You like to bring that up whenever your kids don't honor you know. And, 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 and Paul says the same thing. Uh, honor your father and mother. I got a good verse for you guys. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Y'all got that? Use that one on your kids. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Use that one when you need it. Pull that thing out and go for it. What we know, though, is what oftentimes happens for us is that the Bible is something that is to guide us and to show us the way. And what oftentimes happens, and I say this, I say this, and I want to be clear, because sometimes it, it may take a couple times to get it. We, we need to remember how we interpret the scriptures. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and show you guys in Luke 24. Y'all turn with me. Just as a reminder, Miss Jenna brought me some mints tonight. 
that's got Bob Ross happy little mints. Y'all see that? I got Bob Ross calendars. I got Bob Ross bobbleheads. I got Bob Ross socks from somebody. I just used one illustration and y'all go nuts with it. I used it like 10 times, but I'm saying. Luke 24. In Luke 24, there's two verses or two sections here I want you to see. One, this is after Jesus has been raised. Jesus died on the cross, rose again. So Luke 24 deals with the resurrection. And then there's two appearances of Jesus on this first day, this first Sunday of, of the resurrection. There's two appearances here. One, he appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it tells us in verse 27 of Luke 24 that while he's talking with them, he says, and beginning with Moses, and y'all know what he means by saying beginning with Moses. He's talking about beginning with Genesis, the first five books of the Bible. Moses wrote those books. Uh, by the way, if anybody tries to tell you Moses didn't write those books, you need to remember that they're calling Jesus himself a liar, right? I mean, Jesus said Moses wrote the book, so I'm going to stick with Jesus rather than some, some, some other things. So here he says, in beginning with Moses all, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, uh, the things concerning himself. In all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now this word interpreted, is a Greek word called hermeneu. That's where we get the word. I'm teaching y'all something here right now. Y'all ready? That's where we get the word hermeneutics from. And hermeneutics is a word that we've transliterated into English that simply means to study and apply the scriptures. Because what Jesus does here is he starts with Moses and he walks through and he applies them to say all of them concerning Jesus Christ. He's showing you how to do it. And then he comes down and he meets, his, he meets his disciples the first night. They're in a room. They're kind of scared. The door's locked. He just shows up. He pops in and he says, peace to you. A, a, a very symbolic statement that he's making. Um, just a understanding here when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies to offer up the sacrifice on the day of the atonement. It was always a question of whether or not he comes out alive. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Because if it's offered wrong, if it's not accepted, he's entering to the presence of God and he could be killed at the moment. And so if that offering and sacrifice was accepted, all of Israel is waiting outside to hear the high priest come out. And what does the high priest say? Shalom, peace to you. For God has accepted our sacrifice. So here is Jesus, our great high priest. And Hebrews says when he died, he entered into the heavenly temple, laid his blood on the altar not made with hands that is in heaven. It was accepted. And now he's coming back to his people waiting to hear and says what? Peace. Our high priest, the sacrifice has been accepted. And so then he comes down and it says here, Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. The Hebrew Bible has three sections, the Torah, the law written by Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, the writings, if you will. And so he's saying everything in all of those, Moses, the Psalms, the writing, the prophets. And then Luke helps us out here in verse 45. 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's a pretty important little narrative verse there. Here's how you understand it all. Here's the key to understanding the scriptures. He opens their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and I'm sending that promise to you coming from the Father. In other words, you look at Moses, you look at Psalms, you look at the writings, all of the scriptures and how are they to be understood? In light of Christ Jesus. He's the one that we look to through the scripture for. He is our lens, if you will. He is our interpretive mechanism that we look to all of the text. And some people may say, I don't know if I buy that, right? I don't know if that's how we should handle it. I'm telling y'all, when I get to heaven, I don't believe Jesus is going to look at me and say, you know what? You preached me too much. You found me in too many places. I believe what we see here is Jesus is saying, when you open the Bible, it's all about me. It's pointing to me, right? And so you get to Exodus in these verses here, and what we have to do is try is see and understand how these are pointing us, pointing us towards Christ Jesus. That becomes the ultimate point. They're not just moral lessons. And so some people go, look how dumb the Old Testament is. You read back, you accept the Old Testament. It tells you that if your kid curses you, you got to put him to death. Well, we don't believe that anymore. It's harsh. It's ridiculous. What they don't do is try to understand the scriptures and the guidelines in that context and in that place through the lens of Christ Jesus, right? They don't try to understand that and put it and see exactly what they're teaching. What's the guidelines? What's coming to this? Why does this matter? What's important? What's God doing here? Those are the kind of things we must look to the text and try to answer. So a couple little notes I want to make, and we probably won't go through every little bit of this, but I think there's some things we can touch on. Because before we think, my point is, before we think this section is irrelevant, think about how important this section was for Israel themselves. Before we think all of these little rules and stipulations are irrelevant, think about how important this was for them because they had to live together. And he just said, you know, we, we know the, the vertical aspect of the law between God and man and then the horizontal aspect of the law between man and, and each other. So how do you live amongst one another? How do you live together in this place? And so Israel surely is hanging on everywhere. Like, what do you expect from me in my day-to-day life and how I operate and how I treat one another and how I look to one another? What's happening here is God is forming a people through these rules, these statutes. He's forming a people to display his glory in every aspect. The application of the Ten Commandments is on display in this section of Scripture through different life situations. How do we take the 10 and apply, apply them in different life situations? How do we relate to one another in day-to-day life? God is calling his people, as I've said before, he calls us to holiness. He calls us to, to, to follow him in holiness. But that holiness is seen in the ordinary. We oftentimes try to put that as some pedestal, some high thing, but God's holiness is seen in how we treat one another day to day. 
how we, how we behave toward each other, how we treat property, how we understand the difference between property and people. God's holiness is on display in how we see all of those things and understand all those things. He's calling us to holiness in the ordinary, everyday relationships that we have in life. That's what this is about. He's playing out here in this section, he's playing out the love of neighbor. So in doing this, we try to avoid a few mistakes. We don't want to throw these laws out completely, say they have nothing to teach us. This is a different day, a different age for Israel. We don't want to throw them out completely. Understanding also that we don't have to adopt these exactly as they are either. First of all, we don't live in a theocracy like Israel was. There are some things that we continue with in these rules, and there's some things we discontinue with. That there is both continuity and discontinuity. God's law, though, as we read it, is his character. And if this is who God is, as he is revealing himself to us, then it behooves us. It behooves us to learn everything we can and so that we can follow after the Lord, just as he called Israel to follow after him. That we can build every relationship that honors him. We orient our life around who God is and what he's done for us, right? He doesn't orient things around us. We orient our life around him. And so that's what these are about. Learning then is important for us to learn the principles behind these laws and make Christ as the center of our application. So a couple things we see here. First, in the first little section in chapter 20, verse 22, we're going to see the Lord make the call to worship. The Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. He's got to retrain them, test them, because they've been in Egypt and every god was a little figurine and a little statue. Every time you had a little god, you made something up that represented that god that you would bow down to, that you would care for. So, so the Lord is retraining his people saying, listen, if you're going to worship me, you're going to worship me, not informing these little trinkets and other things. Look, I've come down onto this mountain and the earth has shook and the fire has come and the, the, the thunder has roared and the lightning has peeled and I have spoken and it sounds like a thousand trumpets. Do you think you can contain me in a small little idol or a little statue? That's what the Lord is saying. You can't contain this here, so don't make that. If you're going to worship me, you worship me in simplicity, not in complexity of, of all of these little things, but in simplicity. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me. You shall not make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. And then look here to the second part of verse 24. He says, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And that's pretty important, right? God is going to freely give his blessing out to the people who worship him. And what does he ask from you? Simplicity. 
He says, just make an earthly altar. In fact, he goes on there in verse 25. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stones, for it would, you would wield your tool on it to profane it. In other words, you ain't even got to fashion the stones to make them look good. Just go get some rocks, get some earth, bring your ox, bring your sheep, and worship me. He's not telling them to be fancy. He doesn't say you've got to come through some great and glorious liturgy. He doesn't say you have to do some, some fancy little, little uh, uh, saying or something like that that you've got to spit out to get it all done. He's just simply saying, if you want to worship me, just build an altar, put some rocks there, and bring your ox and bring your sheep. The worship of God is simple. And I'm thankful for that, aren't you? I'm thankful that he's not putting some requirement on me that I have to do, that I've got to dress myself up, that I've got to do some great and glorious thing, that I can just come dressed as a pastor. And when I come dressed as a pastor, I can just bring my offering before the Lord, which now is a sacrifice because in worship, we see here that worship to God requires sacrifice. If you're going to come worship me, the Lord says, don't make an idol. Don't make a little graven image. You make an altar and you bring your sheep and your ox. Because to worship God requires sacrifice. It has from the beginning, by the way. It's been the, it's been the case from the start. We saw it back in Genesis 3. It's been the case from the start. To worship God requires sacrifice because, because where sin is, the only way to overcome it and find forgiveness is through blood sacrifice. And so that's what he's saying. If you want to worship me, just bring your sacrifice. You don't have to be fancy. You don't have to hew your stones into some nice little altar. You ain't got to make it look real good. You don't have to call a contractor and even get permits for it. You just simply bring your sacrifice. Now, isn't that something? Especially when you put it right up against how he showed himself on the mountain. How God put himself on display on the mountain in such a powerful and mighty way. All anybody has to do to get the blessing of God is to build a rough altar, worship the Lord by bringing your sacrifice, and you'll be blessed. The same God who thundered on Sinai is the same one who says, all you have to do is bring me a humble sacrifice, and you'll be blessed. Surely we can understand that today. That what God requires of us is not anything other than simply worshiping him and bringing our sacrifice. What is our sacrifice today? We don't have to bring a blood sacrifice that's been made once and for all for us in Jesus Christ. Our sacrifice today is not bulls and goats. The author of Hebrews tells us, that's already been done, and that didn't have any, really, any real power. It only pointed to the one true sacrifice, Jesus, and he's fulfilled it all, right? But Romans 12 says what? If we're going to worship the Lord, we lay our life down as sacrifice to him. If he's going to save us, what is the response to that? If he redeems us from the eternal pit of hell, to give us eternal life forever, the only proper response is to give him the life that he's purchased back. And so ultimately the Lord says, this is what worship is. It's simple. Just bring yourself, give yourself to me. The blood sacrifice has already been provided. Just bring yourself to me. It's already been made. 
So here the Lord says, and if you do this, my blessing will come. My blessing will be here. The Lord is not stingy with blessing his people. Don't think that the Lord is stingy with his blessing. Y'all see, y'all hear what I'm saying? In fact, it's like the old story, you know, count your blessings. Y'all know that hymn, count your blessings, name them one by one. D.L. Moody tells a story of a woman who says, I just can't think of it. I can't think of, you know, how I, I feel like God's forgotten me. He said, I tell you what, go home, take a pen and pad and start writing down your blessings, every one of them. And he comes back, she comes back a week later and she says to him, or he says to her, did you write down your blessings? No, pastor. Why? She said, before too long in the process, I quickly became overwhelmed. Because we oftentimes say, God's not blessing us, but when we stop and truly count them, we can't count high enough to see them all. And we become overwhelmed with the blessing of God. Even in our difficult times, we can still count how God blesses us. Even in the hardship, we can still count the goodness of God in our life. He does not forget his people. He is not stingy with his blessing for people. He's ready to give it, and he wants to give it. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, I'm ready to give my blessing. So here's a God we worship who has redeemed him out of slavery, who has shown himself in his power and great, great power, who has said, here's what I expect from you on how to live. Don't cross the power and wrath of God. You've seen it on display. So I've given you this so you wouldn't sin. But if you do, bring your sacrifice and I'll bless you. Does that not sound like something in the New Testament? Y'all remember 1 John? You know, do not sin. But if you do, confess your sins. And I'm quick to forgive you of your sins. It's the same thing here. The Lord is saying, do not sin. You see my wrath, you see my power, do not sin. And if you do, bring your sacrifice and I'll bless you. Worship me and I'll bless you. Same thing that we see in the New Testament, we see on display right here. And then the laws begin. The first section really, and I try to go through this as quickly as I can. The first section has to do with our priority over the vulnerable. He speaks here in verse 21 about slaves. He's going to talk about how we care for them. These slaves, look at what he says in verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, you shall... He shall serve six years, and then the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. In other words, the slavery that we're talking about, really, we don't have a good word for that. In fact, our category for slavery doesn't really fit well historically of what's going on here. This is uh, uh, almost like a, we, we use the term bond servant. We don't know what that means oftentimes, but like a bond laborer. What happens here is if you have someone who doesn't have property, who doesn't have stuff that they can tend themselves, they may sell themselves out to someone who does so they can work for that person as this slave, as this bond laborer laborer. And so he sells himself out for that and they can do that work there. So they have a place to work through them. And then on the seventh year, you release them from that. So they'll give you six years. You release them from that. Hopefully by that time they can get out on their own maybe, but it is not. When you see this labor, you've got to understand this is entirely voluntary. It's entirely voluntary. It's temporary. It's not to be oppressive. 
And it's definitely not racial at all. It's the Hebrews selling each other or giving themselves into slavery. But what could happen in this case when you have the master-slave relationship is there could be abuse. And what God is wanting to make clear is there is to be no abuse in these relationships. He's bringing them in here. He's saying you care for them. And the first part is how you care for your male slaves. And then in verse 7, it's how you care for your slaves or your servant's wife. You don't, you, you don't mistreat them. You don't sell her away from the husband. You keep them together. So you see how you care for the vulnerable. Surely we know that the Lord wants us to care for the vulnerable in and amongst us. We don't use our power and position to put others down. A society can't work like that. A society can't build itself like that. It will implode upon itself that we have to care for one another. Even those who are in a different class, in a different position, we care for them. In fact, this is similar to what James will say when he says, here's pure, pure religion, that the widows and orphans will be cared for amongst you. That's it, right? The most vulnerable amongst you, you cannot leave them or set them aside. You must care for them. Same thing here. We cannot... We cannot leave the most vulnerable in our society there without any kind of protection. He goes on. He talks about homicide. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall in his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. In other words, he's seeing the difference between murder and manslaughter. Y'all see what I'm saying? God is setting up how do you properly handle these situations. We use these same type language and other things even today. He goes on I'll, I'll, and, and, and continues. How do you deal with uh, parents? Verse 15, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. He goes up in verse 17. I already quoted this. Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. That word curse is the antonym of honor. And so to curse or to honor. And remember what one of the commandments said? Honor your parents, right? You saw that. Why is that important? I think we all know why that's important. The principle that you pull out of this is not today that if you curse your parents, you need to be put to death. The principle is the Lord is protecting the family. If the family breaks down, then all of this is going to fail in the first place. The Lord is saying you can't have children rebelling against parents. You can't have this in society. And that's why it's so important. So he puts death penalty here as to things that are important. He says, you can't do this. And so the threat here is never to use this, but you also want people to know that you cannot break down this most important part of our society. If the family breaks down, we're in trouble. That's what the Lord's saying. And so ultimately that becomes the, the very point that these, these penalties, as, as one commentator says, the death penalty is invoked not out of indifference for human life, but rather that each human life is a tremendous value. And what that means is because the family is so important, to try to destroy the family has great, great consequences, the greatest of consequences. It's so important to the building up of society that it has the greatest of consequences. And I'm sure all of us believe this now, right? Don't we know how important the family is and what is one of the things in our own culture that's under attack constantly, but the family, the family. The Lord says it's here. This is vitally important to who we are. He goes on, non-fatal injury there in verse 18. What do you do when a men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist? 
Man does not die but takes to his bed. And if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. Y'all hear what that is? If you strike somebody, they get injured. If they survive it, you got to pay his medical bills. Y'all see how that works? He's just simply, I mean, it makes sense, right? This is how you operate with somebody. This is what you do in these cases. Here's how it works when we operate together. When men strive, verse 22, strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Y'all ever heard that before? One, probably right alongside about three other passages of the most often quoted passages that we, that we know in Scripture. I mean, everybody knows eye for an eye, right? And, 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 and really most of the most often misquoted passages that we know in Scripture. Because this oftentimes is quoted to show the Old Testament's old ways that we can't use anymore. Do you see how eye for an eye? That's, that's too harsh. That's too much. But understand what this is doing. This is not trying to escalate punishment. This is trying to hinder an escalation of punishment. This is trying to make what's right, right. In other words, this does not promote vengeance, but restrains it, prevents it. You know, if, if you hit a man's wife and, and, and she's okay, she's all right, you can take the punishment that you need. You can get the, 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 the things you need for that, but you can't go kill the other guy who hit her. Does that make sense? He's trying to restrain how you handle things so that life is protected in its best way. Surely, if life is taken, life is taken. But if you go down, if that's not the case, you cannot keep promoting vengeance. This is not to promote vengeance. It's proportional punishment of how the Lord puts these things in place. The lex talionis is what this is called. By the way, Jesus handles this, and some people say it's over, but I don't think that's exactly what Jesus does. And we'll turn there real quick in Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 5 in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is not, I do not believe, I do not believe Jesus is trying to eradicate this rule, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot. I do not believe he's trying to end it. In 538, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him Turn him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I don't think Jesus is trying to say, remember that eye for an eye? Forget it. That's not what he's saying. In fact, I think he's saying that that still remains. What he's offering up for us as believers is that even though those are right practices and still remain unjustified, there is a more gracious way by which we can handle things. In fact, I think it goes into us understanding exactly what our calling is. Because for us as believers, we have someone who watches over us, right? Who takes care of us? God himself. He'll make sure... 
If you give away your tunic, he'll make sure you got one. He's going to watch over you and care for you. God is the one who does those things. So you can treat others graciously in how you handle things. And in fact, in treating them graciously, you may win them over to faith in who God is. This is a freedom for us. Jesus is not saying, you remember I for an eye, forget it completely. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, he's saying, yes, justifiable, proportional reactions. Those things are right. But we as Christians do not have to claim even the things that are against us because we have one who speaks for us, Jesus Christ, our Lord himself. We don't have to claim every right that we have because we have Christ who's given us all things. Therefore, we can be gracious in how we treat others, even our enemies. Even when they hit us, we can turn the other cheek. Why? Because the Lord defends us ultimately and finally. And through showing that graciousness, God's graciousness can be on display through us. God's graciousness can be on display through us. Jesus is teaching us what it means as, as, as the the book of the covenant in Exodus is teaching us what it means to live together every day in a community that's seeking to honor God and bring him glory. Jesus is showing us what it means to live together every day with people who, aren't not, who are not trying to honor God and bring him glory, but we are. And if they're living that way, here's how we can respond to them. Because Jesus is telling us while all of Israel was held to this, this book of the covenant, Jesus said, there's going to be people in the world that's going to hit you. There's going to be people in the world that's going to steal from you. They're going to take from you. Just know God sees it all, and he will take care of you. So your response doesn't have to be proportional. You don't have to claim any privilege. You can just simply be gracious in it. Jesus is showing us a better way to live in a world that is not seeking after God's glory when we are. That's what he's showing us. And he's shown us that through his own example himself. Because Jesus does not tell us to do anything there in that Sermon on the Mount or in that passage. He does not tell us to do anything that he did not do himself. Because when his enemies struck him, he turned the other cheek. When they stole his clothes and ripped them apart, right? Because they couldn't find a seam, they had to cast lots for the whole thing. He let them have it. Even when they took his life, he did not fight back. Because no one, by the way, could take it unless he gave it to them. He allowed them. Jesus is saying that's the better way for us as believers. Not to claim. Surely we can. The law sets it up right. You can claim. Which, but at the same time, we know God takes care of us. He'll watch us. He'll protect us. He'll provide for us all of these things we've seen in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for providing, protecting, and taking care of your people. Help us to live as a people set apart for your glory in a world, Father, that's dark and oftentimes does not care. But God, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to love one another, to honor you, Father, as we seek to honor each other. God, thank you for Christ who kept every law in the book on our behalf for us so that he could be the perfect sacrifice. Jesus, we come today in your name claiming you as our mediator that has gone before us and entered into the very presence of God on our behalf. Thank you 
for all of your work. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you all so much. We'll see you Sunday.